Welcome to Adventures in Evaluation Podcast with James Coyle and Kylie Hutchinson. Hi, I'm James Coyle. I'm an internal evaluator in a large regional health authority in Canada. And I'm Kylie Hutchinson, and I'm an external evaluation consultant. And together, James and I, we bring you Adventures in Evaluation. Hey, James, how are you? I'm very well, Kylie. I'm very excited today. How are you? I'm pretty excited as well. In fact, I have to tell you, getting ready for this, you know, I felt a little bit like I was having a job interview. <laughs> Those kind of butterflies in my stomach. But we'll tell you why. We, uh, James and I are really thrilled that uh, on this episode, folks, we're bringing you a very distinguished guest in the field of evaluation. We've got Michael Scriven here with us. Hello, Michael. Hello. And Michael, um, many many of our listeners will know that you're a distinguished professor at Claremont Graduate University, and uh, but they might not know that you studied mathematics and then the philosophy of mathematical logic, and then you finished with a doctorate in philosophy from Oxford. Uh, you've had fellowships and you've taught all over the place. You've even taught at the University of Alberta, which was interesting for us to hear, being in Canada. You have 400 and counting publications in the areas of critical thinking, technology studies, computer studies, and evaluation. Many people know that you are an ex-president of the American Evaluation Association, but you are also a president of the American Educational Research Association. You are the recipient of the AEA's Lazarfeld Medal for Contributions to Evaluation Theory. You're widely regarded as the father of evaluation, and we're thrilled to have you on our podcast podcast today. Thanks. Thanks. Kylie, thank you for, for doing that introduction. Um, many of the other things I'll just add that I found interesting was uh, apparently uh, you're also an expert in many things, including wine, uh, knives, I understand. Uh, if I could uh, bend your ear on uh, best knives and kitchen knives, I, I'm sure we could talk about a evaluation criteria for that all day. Um, what we did want to um, talk to you about is a, a book I'm holding in my hands. Uh, it's a volume entitled uh, uh, The Future of Evaluation in Society, which is a tribute to you. Um, and I understand from uh, Stuart Donaldson and others who contributed to it as part of the Stouffer um, Symposium that uh, you appreciated the tribute to you, but that you wanted yourself and others to really speak about the ideas and the future of evaluation. So I wondered if maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Stouffer Symposium, at Claremont, if you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's a big deal, annual celebration of the commitment by our department to be an applied social psych department, heavy emphasis on applied. We were pretty early in that, in the history of psych, and we've remained very strongly in that area. And it was because of that that eventually they became interested in having an evaluation specialist or two. Stuart's own interests as dean and head of department were that way inclined, and he had done quite a lot of work in public health in the USC department from which he came to Claremont. And so he started a search for an evaluator and finished up getting me. And um, that was many years ago. It was a full-time professor's position. But after a while, uh, I enjoyed it very much. But after a while, 
somebody offered me a chair in evaluation, I think perhaps the first one, uh, at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And um, I was very keen to have uh, ownership of the program, so to speak. I wanted to see evaluation become an appropriate title for chairs and specialists and a whole disciplinary apparatus. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I couldn't do that as long as I was really a psychologist. Um, and so I took that and went out there for a couple of years, which I also enjoyed very much and only had to leave because the government made a decision which uh, was a very good decision about the future of teacher training in New Zealand. But unfortunately, there was an unfortunate byproduct for this, which was that um, they would no longer support separate teacher training institutions. They had to be combined with the university departments of education in order to be supported. In our case, I know this isn't the theme of our discussion, but it's an interesting example of side effects. Um, in our case, that meant that our department, which was roughly 30 PhDs and becoming coming to be PhDs, um, was going to be have a slight addition, namely 500 non-PhD faculty um, wow. who were not going to vote for adding difficult courses, which is what they would see any course they never took, um, namely evaluation. And so I was cut off from the possibility of developing an evaluation area. So I then took a, a job um, which Jane Davidson had got started at Western Michigan, setting up a doctoral program, which is just what I wanted to do. And she went, came back to New Zealand, her country, and has been working there ever since. And I came back to Claremont after three years because my wife had a job at San Francisco State. And I promised her that the moment she got tenure, she could stop following me around and I would follow her around. So, so, so I have to say, my father-in-law's best advice so far is a happy wife, a happy life. Yeah, and, right. And I'm still learning that. Yeah. Well, and, and I have to say, from my experience, what my husband followed me to Belgium, and, and there we learned the term studs, spouses trailing under duress. Apparently, that's very common. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So... Michael, your chapter in this book is all about the future of evaluation, and you start off by giving us a summary of the basic foundations of evaluation and, and how it's evolved over time, if you will. And you talk about five paradigm shifts with respect to evaluation. Did you want to just summarize the, these briefly for our listeners? Yes. Um, if you look at graphical representations of the development of disciplines, they all have the same shape. They began near the zero line a long time ago, a couple of thousand years ago, in case of things like philosophy and so on. And then they gradually move exponentially upward as the discipline expands in terms of people and ideas and theories, except for one discipline, namely evaluation, which booms along for a long time 
doing very nicely. And then beginning about 1750, with Hume getting skeptical, it begins to have a sort of splinter group of enemies within the academic disciplines. And uh, it, after 1900 or so, it crashes completely when the social scientists declare that it is absolutely inappropriate for any scientific treatment and must be abjured. And indeed, it was agreed by the editors of all the leading social science journals that they would never publish. Fifty years, there was a blackout, and only mid-century, mid-20th century, did there become a sort of rebellion against this, a counter-revolution, and that gradually picked up steam and became the American Evaluation Association, and it's 100 correlates in other countries where they've also got professional associations of evaluators. So today we're back in the fold of approvable uh, disciplines. And that was the sort of big background. Now the question is, what do we do from there on and from now on? And so I, in that article, set out the next four steps that seem to me important of great milestones, which we either have achieved or I hope will achieve. Namely, first, the recognition that evaluation is not only a discipline meeting all the standards of the discipline, but also a very special sort of discipline, namely one that is a tool for all other applied disciplines, as well as being a discipline in its own right. That's just what I called the transdisciplinary nature of evaluation. Then the, that's where we are now. I think it's fairly well agreed that uh, this is a transdiscipline and obviously has its own autonomous attention uh, and status, and but is also equally obvious that it is used in large numbers of applied areas. So now we begin to focus on it a little more carefully and we discover upon examination that it is rather special in a very high degree. That is, it is the keeper of the standards of propriety for disciplines in general. That is, it is the owner of quality control. The discipline surrounding quality control in any discipline, and it must have one or it's not a discipline, um, is evaluation. And we find that not only um, is that true and sort of vaguely accepted by everybody, but that the field of study of evaluation within the disciplines namely whether or not they are legitimately looking at the validity of their own work, um, has a certain mythology attached to it, which is roughly that true scientific work is always about generalizations and laws of nature, not about particular cases. That's the business of history. Um, and secondly, that it is 
safeguarded by a quality control system that centers on two properties. One, replicability by suitably trained people, and two, peer review. And now, if you start, as Chris Corrin, a student of mine who got interested in this for a PhD, if you start looking at how they actually do it, it turns out they do it about as well as a eight-year-old school child. Completely pathetic. I mean, there was almost no work whatsoever. And the work that had been done, which wasn't bad, had the most appalling results, namely that if you drew two panels to review things out of the same pool of experts, they wouldn't agree at all, or hardly at all. There was almost no agreement amongst peer review groups once you had more than one. So this was all just a bad joke, and all these mighty disciplines we'd been trying to emulate in the socialist sciences were just a very bad example of how not to do quality control. Once somebody who had some training in evaluation began looking at them. So that was the discovery that evaluation was not just a transdiscipline, but the one that owns the membership uh, credentials for discipline status. Uh, now, of course, this is not received with much enthusiasm by Nobel Prize winners in respectable subjects like chemistry, physics, and so on. Um, but that's the way it goes with innovations. But it's logically more or less impregnable, I think. So that's uh, the nearest hurdle first to climb on top of, and that's the new paradigm. And then the two beyond that are the exemplar discipline, the idea that evaluation properly done is the discipline in which we have developed a methodology for doing evaluation properly. And once you've got that, it has to displace nearly everything that's been done in the applied sciences, especially the applied social sciences, because uh, they don't do it right. Now, most evaluators don't do it right, so we're trying to get that cleaned up with a study of what I call uh, evaluation-specific methodology, which is getting it right, handling the values element as carefully as we have previously handled the quantitative studies side of evaluation and other applied mm -hmm. disciplines. So, so that's the exemplar state where instead of us trying to emulate them, uh, them being a sort of attempt to make a standard quantitative social science out of psychology and applied social sciences in general, we go the other way around and they have to imitate good evaluation studies. The final stage, which we're furthest from and which will cause the most distress amongst traditionalists, is what I call the omega phase. Um, and that's when evaluation finally takes on the one remaining peak for the climbers, which is uh, making the whole of ethics a branch of applied evaluation. 
there is no other way to get a serious foundation under ethics which answers the question, why should I be ethical or is it rational and scientific to support ethical conclusions? And my pitch on that is, you obviously by logical definition, it's our business to get into the ethics. And I don't mean everyday practical professional ethics. I mean the big time. If you're going to evaluate large-scale social programs, somewhere you're going to come up against big ethical questions like whether women's health programs should cover abortion provision and so on. And you're just going to have to face those. Or else you give up and say, oh, well, that's up to the client to decide, which is to say you've given up on doing evaluation comprehensively. So that's a series of big paradigm shifts, I think, that I am pushing now towards and filling in the gaps, trying to fill in the gaps. I have to say... um... It wasn't until I was uh, reading this that I went back to study the whole positivism, uh, value-free doctrine yeah. history. I remember from my uh, philosophical studies going over that, but I, I didn't put two and two together and realize that I left what um, was psychology as well and what people back in that department were calling as pure science and pigeon specking keys and knowledge for its own sake, that what always irked me was that I was more interested in seeing some application of it, some value. Um, I think, as you said, we all walk around every day judging and and assessing the merit, worth, or significance of any number of things before we buy it, before we use it, before we marry whoever. And the so, perceptual evaluation, as you as you call it. Yes, uh, everyday practical person's evaluation. So the the big task I had to pull off to persuade myself we could actually make these steps and needed to do so was to connect the evaluation of everyday life, a solid uh, part of our history for two million years, more or less, uh, and thrown away with the superficial positivist analysis, which still persists. Um, with somehow to connect that evaluation of the practical person with the evaluation we've been cooking up in the last 50 years. And that meant eventually that I had to build a new philosophy of science. So that was the hard intellectual uh, task. And I only a couple of years ago got to the point where I felt I had a completely solid philosophy of science that threw away all the stuff that was the foundation of the value-free doctrine. Mm-hmm. And one thing I just want to clarify, um, you mentioned it in the chapter, but um, it, uh, it's something Kyla and I have been talking a bit about is um, in some of the eval talk, listserv chats that have you know, discussed uh, the future of evaluation. I mean, just to be clear, you're thinking way more broadly than what many of us think of day in, day out as program evaluation, um, you know, and, and other related personnel evaluation, policy evaluation, and I think there's the seven Ps or what have you. You're thinking of much more broadly. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the whole uh, cosmology of evaluation? Yes, well, I mean, basically what I'm going to be saying uh, in a couple of talks I've got coming up, one in, in uh, Thailand and another one in Dublin, um, 
about this topic is, guys, you all got on a train and you didn't check the destination. You just checked the question of what it was going to do, what it was first going to get to, uh, which was program eval. And then there were a lot of little hamlets along the way, like personnel and so on. But actually, the, this train is going to follow what the definition of evaluation is in the dictionary, because that's what it chose to call itself. And I have news for you. It's got some pretty remarkable places where it's going to stop, and you're going to have to show your pass. And we expect you to be doing a little work on the, on the voyage, on the trip, um, towards making yourself able to get through the pass control system. I, I love that analogy, Michael, and I, and I wonder if, um, what would you have then as kind of advice or your, the most important takeaway from this chapter for people that just entering the field of evaluation or for people like us who have been doing it for years? Well, the first thing to do is to get try and construct a map of where it's going from all the documentation that's available in dictionaries and the history of science and so on. And that gives you a sort of rough feeling that it's not just these applied fields around the fringe of psych that, uh, and of the other social sciences that are currently the areas where evaluation is professionalized. But it's also many further fields, such as the evaluation of the quality control system in other disciplines. That's an evaluation system. And it's the one that legitimates their status as disciplines, and we haven't been looking at it, and they certainly haven't been looking at it, though they think they have. But, of course, the first thing you'd do if you were thinking peer review was important, um, let alone one of the only two legs of the stool would hold up its quality, uh, would be to check and see if it was capable of passing a test of consistency of uh, test-retest reliability and so on, concepts which they're perfectly familiar with. And uh, no, no, there were, I think, when Corin started this work, you know, four studies in which they'd actually done tests of test-retest reliability of the peer review system, all of them showing negligible test-retest reliability. So... The first thing to do is to get clear about this. Recently, somebody else within science has done a study of replicability for which they got 150 million bucks and tried to replicate with the help of the original researchers the great findings in medicine and couldn't. Even with the original people, funded from this vast pot of money, they couldn't get those studies to produce the same results. Now, there's all sorts of nonsense going on about decline of effects. And no, it's simpler than that. It's just that nobody had checked that there really was an effect. They thought they could do that with one group of people, and you can't do it with one group. And when you start doing it seriously, it doesn't work. So, you know, this is the scandal of the century. The whole business of not having taken care 
to make sure the evaluation within disciplines was done properly is an example of the failure of science to be scientific and a scandal. It's interesting you use the word failure. Um, you know, the old quote that was going through my mind as I was reading and learning more about the history of our discipline to date um, is that if we don't know the history, um, we're, we may be doomed to repeat it. I don't know if those damn positivists and will get back at us, but uh, it's uh, it, it, it's it's helpful to understand the history, to understand our present, avoid making hopefully some of the same failures and mistakes as you put it. Yeah, you shared with me that recently that you had a big move which cut into your productive time. Yeah. Did you want to expand at all on the kind of things you're working on next as well? Well, I'm tidying up the bits and pieces, including redoing the philosophy of science. I'm calling my version of it practical philosophy of science because I want to stress the fact that the scientists have always had a pretty good working philosophy, which was unfortunately misunderstood by the positivists. Uh, you know, understandably for the 1900 period, but unfortunately, and that caricature of it caught on because people saw some echo of truth in it and didn't see any alternatives. And so it began to take over, and it did take over, but very with disastrous results. Uh, you know, even though we've become sort of respectable, the fact is that deep inside the leaders in every social scientist, science at the moment, there is the ghost of the positivist doctrine. And you find the great awards never go to the applied people. These are fr subjects like program of balance on us peripheral subjects from the point of view of hero worship and guru sucking up to in the mm -hmm. in the official social sciences. So although they'll publish it now and accept it, they are easily persuaded that the really important stuff mm -hmm. is the theoretical stuff and the empirical stuff, which is the exact opposite of the truth. Yeah, it puts a bit of a glass ceiling, I think, as you've said, in between evaluation and the rest of the yeah the winners. Yeah. So, Michael, you you talked a little bit about uh, hero worship and and gurus and and a little bit of a tangent question, but I'm interested in knowing who are Michael Scriven's heroes. The great uh, logicians. I uh, began with the study of the foundations of logic and mathematics. And uh, I still regard them as great heroes. I mean, they were great heroes because, amongst other things, they turned up, or Gödel in particular, turned up the incompleteness theorems, which destroyed the myth that mathematics would be able to mathematicize all of the main classical disciplines into an axiomatic system with deduction as the operating form of inference. Uh, they destroyed it because they insisted on care, attention, and precision. Uh, now, what then happened was that people watching them picked up the stuff about care, mathematics, and precision and did lots of sort of intro work in the behaviorist tradition where they were highly quantitative. 
But when they turn towards the more qualitative stuff, most importantly, the evaluative stuff, their nerve failed. And they say, oh, this has to be rubbish because it doesn't fit our picture of what true science should be like. Unfortunately, they weren't very scientific about their study of true science. And so, for example, everybody says, you know, the logical form of the great laws of nature is that they're universal generalizations, no exceptions. And if you find exceptions, you've disproved the law. Uh, but this is, I mean, complete nonsense, uh, because when you look at the gas laws, the laws of solubility and so on, conductivity and elasticity and so on, none of them are accurate at all. And most of them are completely false all the time. But they're reasonable approximations, much mm -hmm. better than no approximations, enormously valuable compared to randomness. So that was their value. But it certainly wasn't characterized as being universal exceptionalist generalizations. Now, the common sense view is that if we can get a pretty good uh, generalization that points us in the right direction, uh, we'll refine it as necessary, but not more, and we'll use it until it needs refinement. Uh, so that's the line I take, and that's what gets me able to handle large slices of evaluation that people haven't been thinking of as being subject to evaluation. So, Michael, um, just before we wrap up here, I really want to thank you for taking the time to meet with us today. We do know how busy you are and how industrious you've been over time. and. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard for anybody to kind of capture just how influential you've been. Um, I was curious to know um, why you stuck with evaluation, why you got into the field and then stuck with it. I appreciate you had many other interests, but um, why did you commit so much of uh, your time and, and, and still do to, to this field? Because it is the key to so much and because so little had been done. Mm -hmm. getting it done seriously by people who are highly trained in the philosophy of science. And so it's been a, a, an unexplored area to a large extent. Yeah, and, and, and on that note, it's it's also interesting that there's there's so many scientists you hear about that complain that the golden age of their particular discipline has passed, there's nothing else to look into, better look for new fields. I think one of the cases that um, maybe it wasn't explicit, but uh, you, you allude to it, is that there's a lot of room for, for young and other evaluators to still explore. Yeah, I mean, the unexplored fields cover thousands and thousands of acres. Uh, so this is a great area to get into, to begin to really make a contribution that helps not only other academics in dis other disciplines, but also the world, because it's the applied area where the damage is done by having bad foundations. And so this is really a high-stakes business, and we've got to try to work on it. By the way, there were plenty, there were half a dozen other people fooling around when I began fooling around with the foundations of all this. It wasn't just me. And they were really terrific, Dan Stuffelbeam, for example, but Ralph Tyler and others. What was really, really interesting 
was that they were all ed researchers, educational researchers. That's mm -hmm. a despised area thought of as being where you go if you can't get into a decent science. Um, these were the people who, because of their tremendously multiple models of different approaches coming from the background, in the good old days, there were historians of education in, in education schools and comparative education people in there who could tell you what's really going on in Singapore and Finland and so on. But all of those things have been dropped as being irrelevant. But one of their part of their relevance was that they showed us how badly we were doing the study of the things which we were then worshipping and misleading ourselves with. So that was a pity. So Michael, just just to wrap up, you've been at this for quite a while now. What what would you like your eventual legacy to be to the field of evaluation? Oh, that I question most of the existing models and manage to find positive ways to go that would improve the payoff from a large slice of the academic work, which wasn't really connected properly to the, the everyday problems of what should, how should, should we have a common core curriculum in the United States? Uh, should we be trying to emulate what they do in Finland or in China or in Singapore or et cetera, et cetera? Um, payoff from disciplines which were confused about their own nature. Um, and I hope I've done something to, or will have by the time I check out, uh, to tidy up the, the nature of the nature of the disciplines and that thereby enable them to make larger contributions to the applied fields. Well, as one of the other uh, contributors to that symposium said, um, uh, let's hope we ain't seen nothing yet. Yes. As you said, we've, you've still got a lot of work to do. Yes, and I hope other people will get excited about it. I mean, we've gone from, you know, whatever we had, 20 people at the first meeting of the Evaluation Association to 8,000 there and 100 similar organizations. That's pretty good, but it's not fast enough and wide enough yet. So let's hope that there'll be much more expansion. No kidding. Yeah. Can't imagine the size of the conference rooms that will be required for all that. Listen, Michael, it, it has been a, a genuine uh, pleasure. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will um, uh, be eager to listen uh, to this a couple times because um, it's very rich um, and pick up uh, the book. We'll, we'll have a number of links on our podcast site, uh, which people can check out at adventuresandevaluation.podbean.com. If you have a question for uh, Kylie or I, you can email us at adventuresandevaluationpodcast at gmail.com. And I just wanted to add, too, that in the spirit of evaluation, uh, if people felt like it, they could maybe rate us on iTunes as well. That would be really nice. And uh, we, love, we always love getting your comments as well. And so, Michael, just wanted to say thanks very much for your time. We appreciate this. And uh, look forward to hearing more from you uh, along these lines. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for asking me to join the conversation. 
Okay, well, James, lots to uh, think about. And um, we will also put the link to the to the book on the webpage as well. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Michael. I really appreciate uh, your time. Uh, nice to talk to you. Bye.